you know even uh, your windows look like they're, they're tinted and you think that's this literally midday outside what's going on um people have been wearing jumpers and jackets and then actually now the sun's come out so i don't know if this is like the last push for summer but it sounds like some places in the states are i mean you're you're all in different places but some are sweltering jen you were saying it was disgusting <laughs> can you say indian summer anymore or is that offensive <laughs> probably very offensive <laughs> it's probably offensive probably not pc yeah we had we we're down to in the 50s now so in the pacific northwest it's pretty chilly i think our summer is drawing to a close rapidly is, it, uh, is the climate changing that, that it's moving forward so we're getting summer earlier and it's finishing later that's what sort of people have been saying recently um they're not necessarily subscribing it from what I've read to climate change, but it just looks like we've, we're seeing a shift that things are moving forward. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's a wrap guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs> we can't wait. Have we talked about climate change? Not to, we had other thoughts in mind, but that's something to talk about at some point. I think that's a really good idea. No, I don't think we've ever talked about it. Maybe we should, maybe we should bring that up. It's a big topic. Well, welcome to Monday's Solid Ground live stream. It is September 4th, Labor Day, and um, it's nice to see you all. I see, is it uh, Mirwar Jumeo? I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, it says summer ended abruptly yesterday in Seattle. Yeah, it totally did. It was uh, rainy all day. I live a little north of Seattle, so totally. Um, David, would you like to start us off with the Solid Ground little intro, the blurb? Thank you. Uh, solid Ground is a peer support community for anyone concerned about the imposition of critical social justice, CSJ, aka woke, and or COVID mandates in their workplace, university, children's school, or community. We offer weekly online peer support groups in which members share ideas, thoughts, and support for how to navigate the impact of these ideologies, and to answer the question, where do we go from here? You can join join one of our groups and enjoy one of our groups for only five dollars per month. To find out how to join our community, please visit solidgroundsupport.com. And please note, Solid Ground does not provide psychotherapy or legal advice, and nothing we do should be construed as such. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, David. Um, so, David, you brought up something interesting when we were just chatting before going live about compassion and empathy, and some thoughts that you were having on that. Do you want to? give a little bit of of your thoughts on that yeah thanks. i was listening to a trigonometry episode yesterday and uh the guest was making a very co convincing point that um whilst compassion compassion is often talked about in, in within some of these ideologies and um, it often feels like that's the point at which people stop it's like if i have a feeling of compassion towards something then it must be a good thing or, or at least we're helping out those people less fortunate than us so it's, it's it's from a place of compassion and this guy was sort of saying that well uh there's always a sort of shadow side to that that there's always uh the same thing that makes you compassionate towards say an in-group um it will make you hostile to an out-group it's almost as if and i think he was referring to um studies they've done with oxytocin and oxytocin being a very binding human uh, like a like a hormone that's released when we bond when human beings bond i think like 
when mums bond to their infants and when, well, even two friends are bonding over something, they release oxytocin. But the oxytocin is also something that would promote, if you gave it to people, um, a sense of sort of protective uh energy towards keeping your clan safe so it's almost as if there's always a double-edged sword to, to compassion and i just thought that was a really interesting place to think about this ideology and how i find in conversation and uh, uh, with people on my course or friends and, and i had one not that long ago where um uh, it was said to me that i probably wouldn't understand um quite what people had women who were going through with with regards to bathrooms and uh, yeah. I don't know there was a way in which I was I was basically forced out of that conversation because I don't have the requisite experience therefore I don't have the compassion that they feel and so they they sort of trumped me in that situation I think that there's a lot, there's one other thing to sort of throw in there and I think it was that status uh is something that I don't think human beings we can ever not be orientated towards on some level and that there's like an evolutionary um, basis for sort of seeking status that means that you're you're either achieving it through one of three ways, I think, dominance, um, so actually authoritatively having dominance over someone else, um, competence, so yeah, like uh, uh, designing the wheel, <laughs> you'll get food for doing something like that in, the, in a clan in which you've created some sort of technology. And then the third is, is, is signaling virtue. So signaling that you're a good person. So that is about, I guess, signaling compassion. I guess that's another part to it, which maybe I've opened up too many parts to it once there, but I think that's another part to the compassion piece as well. Hmm, that's really interesting. I think that there's a lot there and I, I wanted to maybe start out in responding to you by reading the etymology and the, the, the definition, I think it's great to define words and terms. And so compassion, we all know what it means, but I, I like going back into the roots of things. So it's um, feeling of sorrow or deep tenderness for one who is suffering or experiencing misfortune. And so I, I guess I was thinking that there was also a, a like a, a time element to compassion. So if you want to, you think about the kid who falls down and hurts their knee, do you want to run over and Im immediately make that feel better? Or do you think about the long-term, uh, the, the development of that child of a sense of self-sufficiency and a way to self-soothe? So do you maybe stand back and see first, are they okay? Allow them to pick themselves up and offer them support if they seem to still need it. So that's like the, the long-term and short-term strategy right there but maybe the longer term strategy involves actually not being compassionate if we think about feeling with someone and a desire to re relieve the suffering so maybe that is a different thing altogether or i don't know if that's a matter of actually just tolerating your own discomfort of the other person's suffering while still just having this longer term view um i think maybe some people just can't tolerate watching. I haven't been a parent, but I even just watching children and it's like, okay, like they're crying or they're whatever. And it does hurt to watch that, you know, but then also making, I don't want to say a calculation that sounds too whatever, but cold, but still nonetheless thinking, okay, what's for this longer, this being's longer term benefit. And it still feels bad. And I'm holding a longer frame. I think I like that timing you said the way you framed it, Leslie. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think it really, it's interesting, David's exploration of status as relates to expression of compassion, virtue. So there's a lot of different pieces there. Yeah, I, I started thinking about this. I, do you know what? I've started looking at the timetable for my next for next year and what I've got coming up in the course. And I've already started thinking about how I'm going to approach some of them. And one, one of the lectures is just called Intersectionality. And um, I just kind of feel like... Um, there's enough people I know on the course now that are already bored about this. And I just feel like sort of going, Can I, I've got a question, you know, asking the guy at the front, uh, why are we still talking about this? Why, why are we still talking about this? Like, and, and then just trying to get, get, I'm really fascinated as to what it is that, that, that drives the, the course to keep piling this stuff. We've done the intersectionality thing. We all know the wheel. We all know the wheel of intersectionality. If you need the intersectionality wheel to sit opposite someone in a, th a therapeutic environment and go, hmm, they're, 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 they're black, disabled, and a lesbian. Hmm, I wonder what they're going through. You know, if you need to do that to kind of connect to the person, then I don't think you've done enough. Maybe this isn't the right career for you. So that, it doesn't work on that level. But also, even if you're just trying to understand it on like a sociological tool level, like how much does this really tell you about the world? So it's, it's just not, I'm just kind of, I, I'm trying to bring in maybe not a sort of um, an energy that's like, right, what is it, you know, what is it we're doing? And then I'm going to go kind of James Lindsay and try and break it down. I might just be sort of taking a bit of like, I don't actually know why we're still talking about this. We've done this. Why are we still on it? And, and I think that the thing that drives people to keep putting it on, to keep wanting to talk about it, it's got something to do with this signaling of virtue. It's like, this isn't about competency. I mean, it may be have something to do with dominance, but it's definitely got a lot to do with signaling virtue. And yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. That wheel, when you're talking about if it, what kind of therapeutic competence do you have if you have to refer back to this intersectionality framework in order to know how you're supposed to interact with your client? You know what it makes me think? If this is actually kind of a sinister thought is, it seems like it's AI training. I mean, basically that's what that is. It's like, Algorithm. yeah, it's, that's what it is. I mean, it's putting things, it's breaking things down into pixels of what it means to be a person and humans don't need that, but computer therapists, maybe, maybe that's what's going on. It's the ultimate sort of administrative bureaucratic way of looking at people, isn't it? It's just, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. James J in the chat. I wanted to read this one it says compassion by public and he puts compassion in, in quotes by public school employees have done unimaginable harm to my daughter. And yeah, it has prolonged her suffering. I'm really sorry to hear that James. It sounds like there's a really painful story behind that. And um, that, yeah, prolonging of suffering. I think that's a really um, a succinct way to express that. Like, are you going to come in Russian and alleviate short-term suffering or do you have a thought for the long-term potential for greater suffering that can be caused by alleviation right now of distress i mean this issue is so pronounced in the you know say san francisco or the cities where they're doing the harm reduction um and with compassion you know basically abetting people acting out their addictions, just sitting in these squalor, dangerous, dangerous situations for themselves and others on the street. And um, I mean, I don't know at what point they're going to realize this was a huge mistake. There's just still this notion that, I mean, I know before there was either 
really horrible institutional settings to say, put the people who might be mentally ill and like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to force people into something that's really horrible. I, I, I get that, but it's just amazing. me. I don't know how long people are going to go and not see the very obvious costs and suffering right in front of their eyes um, of what's going on. And like one of the, one of the judgments of such people is like, well, you're so privileged, like what, you're just privileged. So you don't want to have to see all that. Um, you know, to, 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 as though if you don't want your children running into that, like that's like a really privileged position and you shouldn't, you know, be allowed to not want people harming themselves and dying on your streets. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I always thought that was odd when they make the attempt to equate caring about safety with privilege because it's actually a fundamental basic human need across all races, cultures, socioeconomic classes. It's kind of like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs where we're all concerned, you know, with meeting our basic needs first. So to try to interrupt a very normal human impulse to protect your, um, your life and well-being and the life and well-being of your children is just, um, I think, an outrageous manipulation. I was just thinking about that. Sorry, just jump around a bit. But I, Debbie, you said something earlier about like not being able to tolerate someone else's short-term suffering. Like, can you see this? Can you see that as happening on the society level when we're not we're, we're doing things like I don't know affirmative action to kind of plug the gaps of something, but we're not we're not willing to go through the hard work of of I don't know actually going no looking at the problem putting in the, I don't know the educational access that's gonna help lift people out in the long term because as a society, we've we've somehow programmed ourselves to be a bit too knee-jerk, a bit too intolerant of like, or, or, or need to be the sort of her, heroic savior or something like that. That it, it does it, none of the long-term stuff really, um, really sort of seems to come into um, focus. Well, it also seems like that there's that, and then there's the don't blame the victim mentality too. So like, there's this idea that we should like either not expecting more or not like if we put some focus on any particular people that need more help and maybe ask more out of them or, or or something like that as though that is some of that blame the victim comes up pretty quickly um and then again that would be not very compassionate to be uh, wanting more to happen like earlier on to maybe like remedy something because that would require some um agency or some and maybe they don't you're expecting people to have agency and look at you took their agency away from them historic you know it seems to get caught in that a asante sends a super chat thank you very much and says how far do you think punishment should go i don't know i don't know what you're referring to exactly could you say a little bit more about that well I'm not sure punishment for what. Um, yeah, it is really interesting when you're talking about agency and 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 victim blaming. Like those are, there's a a fine line there. It seems like for people hearing, uh, asking a person or expecting or or wanting for a person to be able to sort of solve their own problem or find their own level of accountability for what they can do differently to change a bad situation, even an unfortunate situation that happened to them outside of their own control. But a lot of times their own actions in order to remedy 
are really, really necessary. They need to cultivate their own resilience. I mean, we could be talking, we're talking so vaguely, I'm talking so vaguely right now. So it's hard to want to, you want to apply that to something specific, but if you, but in this current ultra compassionate, I guess, DEI sort of victim celebrating culture, it's really, that's not an okay thing to say or expect. And you add the trauma piece in, and that's, I think, has complicated things as well. And it, I mean, I have a lot of appreciation for this because I, I know from certain things like accidents I've had and certain things that have, that are like harder to do. And sometimes it feels like there isn't capacity and someone's saying like, you should just be able to do it. And you're like, I can't find it. Like, mm-hmm. where is it? And, um, but that can become a shield for like any, any ask right? Any, well, maybe, maybe you could do this, this little thing over here, but it's like, oh, trauma, like, um, how dare you ask me? And it's, that's like, that is that fine line too, of like assessing the real capacity of somebody or where, what would be the most efficacious way to engage them that like, that's going to build capacity instead of them feeling like a failure, or it was like too big for them to do or, or something, but not enabling either. I, I see this on like uh, students and facilitators or whatever in, in, in the clinical psychology world is that, that, that some people just seem to sort of, they go to an extreme with this kind of validation so that it's, it's almost as if what we need to do is just tell the story of how you got to where you are. And as long as we can normalize and validate all of that in as, as much as we possibly can, that, 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 that the, the, the route out of where you are currently will materialize there's almost a kind of faith that that's going to happen but and and any sort of any pushing well any encouraging of the idea that this person maybe has autonomy to to, to lift themselves out of that situation it doesn't it doesn't feel that at the moment that that's very um very that doesn't feel like that's flavor of the month in the psychology world at all at the moment I Mm -hmm. I feel like that's we're almost that's the trauma model as well isn't it it's it is the model of kind of validate and normalize and and and, ask, and, and it's, it's really useful as I think it's a really useful way to maybe as an antidote to some of these more sort of pathologizing ways of thinking about things there's a model of psychology called the power threat meaning framework which was set up specifically to be the antithesis of a harsh medical model that says that all of your problems are centered within you but it's a balance isn't it because we've gone so far the other way now that normalization and validation for someone who comes to a service might not be enough and I don't know I'm thinking I'm thinking about different genders I know I'm sort of jumping around a bit but um there's definitely a lot to be said for the idea that um people have different le- yeah people lean in different directions on whether or not they want to take control and autonomy over their lives a bit more um but we only seem to have prescriptions for validation at the moment well Asante gives a little more um, info here. It says, for example, do you guys believe in something like the death penalty? I feel like that's that's a little bit straying off course for what we're what we've been talking about. If you guys want to go into that, we could, or or we could just um, think about that for a future discussion. I'm not sure whether that fit. I'm not sure where that fits in personally. I'm um, not sure either. For for what? I mean, for the DEI people. <laughs> no, no, no. It's for wearing leggings as pants. 
Do you have to go to court for that or is it just shot on site? <laughs> just shot immediately. Shot on site. Yeah. Yeah. No leggings as pants. No compassion. For your athleisure. Anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about we can talk about the death penalty another time if you like, guys. I think I think that probably sounds like it's a topic. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it sounds like a good topic. Going to bigger, like either criminal justice category or something. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a good one. Uh, that and climate change, but yeah, in terms of of compassion, let's see. I want to read a comment that just popped up. Matt Von Wald says, I just wish everyone was a little more compassionate instead of a few people being ultra compassionate. That's an interesting thought. And I guess I, I kind of come back to this idea just from parenting, you know, as it, in terms of that's your little microcosm, that's your little micro society that you're building. When you have children, you are, stewarding these people into becoming independent adults and you want the best for them. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to think of government as being parental, but that certainly is what we've kind of created. And so, if, and if you zoom out and you think about a larger society, you have, uh, you have elders and people in charge who are uh, putting themselves or have, are just in a position of, cultivating the next generation and deciding where the guide rails go. So there is a parental sort of analogy to be made, I guess. And in parenting, I think that, you know, it's really important to do that, that thing that we started out, that example from the beginning, you are looking to help the, the child solve their problems by under, by coming to an understanding of how they can solve their problems, because there's the knowledge that at some point they have to be able to function without you there to remind them or to help them or to soothe them. So the ultimate goal is an independent person who can take on all of their own responsibility. And so if you rush in and alleviate their suffering immediately, you are creating a, a handicap where that person cannot learn to manage that on their own. And so with the, the over the heaping of compassion or, or sympathy on a victim and the shielding of that, that victim, and, and people are victims of a lot of things, but if you shield them from having any sense of accountability or any sense of resilience or building an agency building their way back out of their problem, then how have you helped that person to function independently? Yeah. And the, and the message you send is you can't do this on your own. You need me. <laughs> you need yeah. me. Um, yeah. It's like the Freudian devouring mother, isn't it? I guess that's what the archetypal pathology that Freud spotted like years yeah. ago is that, you know, people have to break free of the, um, mother-infant bond uh, at some point and they have to and that's painful to do that it's painful to grow isn't it it's painful to develop that level of resilience and to leave something behind perhaps but it's necessary i need to move a sec oh, uh -oh. oh. well i guess she'll be back in a minute danner kando <laughs> yeah. in the chat says just arrived sorry if this was already addressed how do you define trauma? This word keeps popping up everywhere these days. And I think that's a really good one to, um, to define. 
Jennifer, what do you think? Uh, I don't know. I'm really stupid today because I <laughs> I didn't sleep last night. Well, that sounds traumatic. No. <laughs> well, it's really annoying. I'll tell you that. I tried to be like all the other kids and have a casual tea at Starbucks in the afternoon, and they do something where they really brew it. They must just brew it for hours. I had a green tea, and so I was literally up all night, and then eventually drunk myself. And wow. so now I'm sedated and have had only a couple hours of sleep. So I am basically an idiot today. So <laughs> yes or no questions only. I can't, I can't. Even yes or no questions. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm just, I'm just here for your viewing pleasure. <laughs> then why don't we, we'll go to the dictionary of English language, fifth addiction, uh, addiction, addition, um, serious trauma, serious injury to the body as from physical violence or an accident Two, severe emotional or mental distress caused by an experience or three, an experience that causes severe anxiety or emotional distress. And then they give some examples. So, uh, but they're talking about rape or, co uh, or combat specifically here. And so I, I think that trauma in terms of like the old DSM definition of PTSD, trauma had to be something that made you an experience that put you um, in fear of your, uh, of death, basically yourself or a loved one. So it was something that was yeah. really, really severe where you had to fear that you were in a, a life-threatening situation and, or be in a life-threatening situation. And now it's become much more colloquially, colloquially used to, and I think maybe even softened in the, in the newer edition of the DSM. I'm not sure I'd have to check that out, but um, it's been softened and now it's just something that causes severe or, or just emotional distress. Something that's yeah. emotionally distressing is, is now referred to as traumatic. Yeah, we've been using uh, questionnaires to look at um, uh, PTSD symptoms within uh, adolescence, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the identification of whether an event was traumatic is is the 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 long term effects it has, or not even long term, but kind of sh short to mid term effects that it can have on someone to be become more like hyper vigilant to things that remind them of that event to um become sort of completely intolerant of anything that that links themselves back to that to kind of uh become isolated or anxious or or, or unable to do the things that you're able to do that, that you could do normally and then also just to have flashbacks or or kind of intrusive thoughts about that event uh, long after it happens and these are all things like you say like these are all things that you have to sort of identify to be able to then verify that it is a trauma or ptsd but but now it's not, is it? It's just about, it's just about, well, I found that, I found that emotionally distressing. I can put the word trauma on it. If, if that is politically <laughs> advantageous to me to do so. Well, it's, it seems like there's, there, there are several pieces to that, right? Because there, what, there's some, is it, is it possible to be objective in defining what would be traumatic to another person? So I'm not really trying to play devil's advocate, but I'm trying to kind of look at the the topic um, broadly. It, in terms of what would be traumatic to one person versus another, there's going to be some variability. Just like 
we know that different people are are more or less sensitive to all kinds of things for for lots of reasons. Maybe it's their their inborn temperament or their own experiences or their age or whatever it might be. The different variables about a person, their prior prior uh, experiences with this thing. You know, are they sensitized to be particularly um, raw around a uh, a given subject or experience in their life? So I think that there it's it is a really difficult thing to define what is actually traumatic, but it does seem like it's become overused. And with over application, also what you're telling people is that these things should be traumatic for you. So you encourage a hypersensitivity in people. If if you keep on hearing that things are traumatic and then you go through those things, it's like, oh no, I just went through something traumatic. So I don't know. It feels like there's a lot, a lot of parts to that. I suspect that we were formerly most likely defining trauma too narrowly, and now we've probably opened up the definition too broadly. Um, because yeah, everything that's upsetting or unpleasant isn't necessarily traumatic and doesn't result in um, you know PTSD symptoms. But I don't, I don't agree with how we originally were defining it that. Um, you know, it had to be something that was really outside the course of normal events and something where you thought your life was in immediate danger because, you know, you just, when you work with people, you just see the, um, even something like um, parental neglect that is um, not something where you think you're going to die immediately, but just this sort of long-term um the long-term consequences of not having your needs met over time results in some trauma. That is something that someone in the chat actually addresses. It's uh, Dore Mia Culpa. That's a cute name. It says, cute. I have seen childhood trauma defined as something that happened that, uh, that should not have happened, like abuse, and or something that did not happen that should have happened, like being loved or cared for. So abuse or or neglect that makes sense um and and also begs the question of the the qualitative value of that right so lots of things that should have should not have happened could happen and not merit a trauma label and vice versa with the neglect like there are things that you should have received or should i mean what and where's the should what is the should what's the baseline there where are we putting that pin, but I think that's, that's a good starting point. I may have missed this part. Sorry, my battery died again. Um, but like my, my way I think about trauma is, is does this particular person given this particular circumstance have the nervous system structures and processing to actually digest the circumstance and integrate it? If they do have it, then they don't have a trauma. <laughs> and if they couldn't do it and it's causing symptoms, it's causing splitting, it's causing whatever, then that was Trump, we could call that traumatic, and it could be whatever it was. Um, so I kind of take it more on a biological um, processing level, as opposed to this type of event, or this type of, there could be some correlations between that, but it seems to be capacity, and then it could be the person's innate capacity, it could be if they got certain things laid down well in their nervous system from childhood, being well regulated, then they might have a better chance at absorbing a big thing um, than somebody else. I don't know. That's how I think about it. 
So that yeah, also, think... oh, sorry, David, go ahead. Well, so I was just going to say that, 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 that again seems to come back to the idea of, of it being about what the effect it has on someone, the sort of symptoms that come up, the, the experiences that come up as a result of having had that experience, not about the experience itself. It's about, because I mean, even, even you know, you can even work with someone, can't you, that sort of, um, it, it seems to have a lot of symptoms that maybe speak to the idea that they've had trauma and then you go through their life with them and they haven't had one specific event, maybe, but they've had a slow, uh, kind of like that, the commenter was saying there's been a there's been a neglect or an attachment based trauma that's existed for a long period of time sustained over many years and that can that can bring about different effects again but it's like yeah it's focusing on the effects it has on someone as opposed to saying oh that's a traumatic event because plenty of people can have experiences of the same event and not be traumatized because they have their own internal resources and resilience like you say yeah and you know what? actually one thing i remember i don't know if it was body keeps the score which book but it was really striking to me it was if a person is in circumstances, whatever it was, I don't know, like you were in a bus and it crashed and it tipped over. I think there might even been a study. This might not be right, but you'll get the feel for it. The people who, either because they didn't freeze or whatever, who actually did were able to do something in that moment, maybe it's like I got to open the window and get out, were less likely to have these lingering symptoms we might call trauma than someone else who, either because they froze or they were so immobilized, they couldn't do something. Um, and so it's a, to me, it's a very interesting thing. And I don't want to blame anybody for not having agency. Your nervous system could just go into a complete freeze when something's horrifying and you just are, are stuck. But it was interesting that when people felt like they weren't completely powerless in the circumstance, that somehow that enabled either like nothing lodging in the system or easier to dislodge or heal or integrate afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And a couple of people in the chat are are chiming in that they love how you're phrasing that, Deborah, your, the biological response model and the individual nature of that. And um, someone here says, I like this, uh, Randall Sawyer says, trauma at its core has a component of believing or experiencing something which the individual knows at the core to be untrue. And then goes on to say, to, to use this other definition, violation on individual's truth like gaslighting, physical or emotional violation of boundary. And I think that that's an interesting thing to bring up because there is this concept of betrayal trauma, for instance, where in a relationship, um, someone will experience betrayals, maybe chronically, maybe just a single one that shocks them very badly, hurts them very badly, destroys an attachment or harms an attachment and the person can then have lingering after effects and difficulty with bonding and difficulty with um, understanding their their life in the in the context that what they thought before was one thing and now the foundation like say in a in a uh, a a, re a loving relationship or a committed partnership where there's infidelity or or sudden domestic violence. Now your foundation is rocked because something that you based your reality on is fundamentally wasn't true in the way that you thought it was. And this can be really, um, it can really have a big impact on someone's mental health. So I, I think of things like that. That's just one example, but that's an example in which you're, you're not afraid for your life necessarily. And you're not experiencing something um, like the bus accident or anything, but you still have some sort of an, uh, in, there's an impact on you that carries forward and changes you in a in a really profound way 
negatively. So that emotional component to trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. I believe that really strongly. And then because it's like, you're not just questioning that person and thinking, oh, how well did I know that person? You're now questioning your own judgment and your ability to navigate the world. Mm -hmm. So it's like the, it's like your entire foundation has just been yanked out from underneath you and that can be severely traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I can see that being also a part of the gaslighting because in, in the people that we talk to about um, how they've been impacted by some of these the DEI trainings that they've had to go through, people who've had experiences like your own, Jennifer, with what happened to you at work, where you think you know your workplace and your coworkers, and then suddenly everybody's, you know, it's like body snatchers and they're all talking this new language. And, treating, <laughs> and so, I mean- That's exactly how I felt, invasion of the body snatchers. You're just like, did they get you too? <laughs> well, yeah, it has that, that was it, freaky. Doesn't that have a similar quality to the thing that you're just describing? Yeah, I did. I did find what I went through to be traumatic. And to the extent where the first time I spoke about it on a podcast for the next two days, I could barely physically move. I was just lying around in bed and I was sort of intermittently weepy and I'm not really a crier anymore. So it was, it was weird. There was definitely a trauma reaction going on mm -hmm. for me. It's really interesting to me that there's this concept creep, this sort of idea that, you know, when at one time we would have defined trauma narrowly according to these particular terms. And now we have we are embracing new ways of looking at it. And there's some tendency to sort of mock that and belittle that. And I think maybe with good reason, there's reasons to put guide rails on that a little bit, but there's also there also see does seem to be um a what a, a social um, change in, in resilience that corresponds to that, that concept creep. And maybe as our social dynamics change, what we find damaging changes. I don't, I don't know. I, I think this is an interesting topic. Somebody in the chat just says, um, Drenton says, stop indulging character flaws. It Surely it only has an impact if one dwells upon it. And that's interesting. I mean, I think that that's not... That that's a that's put harshly, but <laughs> you know, is it is there something there to talk about? Well, I don't know. know. About, oh, go ahead. Uh, I think that, um, and this is probably going to um, to be an irritating comment to a lot of people. But I've started to wonder more and more lately how much of what we attribute to morality or good character is really just more a superior ability to um, regulate the central nervous system. Because I think some people, their whole central nervous system can be completely hijacked and they are in a sort of panic state and they are not thinking clearly. And there are other people who things just, something upsetting does not throw their central nervous system completely into overdrive. And they're able to kind of be in the, rest and digest state more, which results in them behaving better and more calmly and rationally. 
And I, I think that, you know, I agree with what Deborah was saying about how what's traumatic for one person isn't traumatic for another. And a lot of it has to do with our central nervous system response. And I think that there's a lot of value in looking at how a person's central nervous system responds and helping that person to know how to shift out of those highly um, dysregulated states. And I want to speak to, I am a person with one of these heightened nervous systems, probably both by birth and by circumstance. And it, th there is that part of like where I need to take those self-responsibility. The plus side of it, I would say, say compared to someone who's more say stoic, or I don't know what we might, I don't know what to call it exactly. Um, it does give a canary in the coal mine capacity. So there can be sensing something's weird, something isn't quite right before someone else who might not be as easily agitated could tell. Yeah. So it's, I think we probably need both kinds, you know, maybe neither extremes, but like, like there's, there's a complementary nature to that. I totally get what you're saying. And I am of a, that highly sensitive nervous system myself, which is probably why I've been so drawn to meditation and learning how to self-regulate, but I will get odd breakthroughs. And there were times um, when I've been sitting with clients and I could tell that they were about to enter a manic episode because it would throw my heart into a bit of arrhythmia. Hmm. And they weren't, they weren't doing anything, um, you know, grossly, um, manic or suggestive of a manic episode but it, all i can say was it literally felt like something was wrong in the air around them like a crackling and my mm -hmm. heart would start going out of sync and i'd say oh i think they might have stopped their meds so that's an example of the hypersensitivity being representative of greater attunement to environment not mm -hmm. necessarily just a weakness but also in some ways a strength yeah it can be useful but it's not yeah. pleasant when it goes <laughs> Mm. offline like that well somebody in the chat let's read a couple more of these um oswald spangler says russian american sociologist at boston university leah greenfield says that all western mental health conditions are the same underlying trauma and the soviets knew this i don't know what you mean exactly would you that's mind saying interesting a bit more? do you know what yeah, he's explain saying that. there i don't okay. but i okay. want to know that's yeah. really yeah okay yeah please if you want to say more about that oswald we'd like to hear more uh, Paul McAuliffe says, we do have to be careful not to allow trauma definition to spread too far, especially with a growing falsely hypersensitive society, in my opinion. That's an interesting point there. Um, and I think that that is that, yeah, that, that like, how do you, at what point, how do you check that, that sort of, you know, I, I always come back to that that phrase, I, I think it's an interesting one about um, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times, hard times make strong men. And so secular, and then you could, you could use men or you could put people in there if you want to be more inclusive or whatever you want. But the idea <laughs> being, the idea being that we have a sort of circular uh, social pattern where you really are shaped by the sorts of adversity or the lack of adversity that you experience in your life. And you really do have, you know, it takes, takes uh, opportunities to 
be self-reliant or be self-soothing or to be, um, to have agency in order to build agency, in order to build resilience and in order to build independent self-reliance. So if you are coddled, if you are, if you have every need met all the time, you have less opportunity to build that sense of, of agency. And so in a, in a peaceful and uh, plentiful society or life, or even, you know, microcosm in your own family, you have fewer option opportunities to exercise the things that you need in order to be strong and resilient and vice versa with the right amount, whatever that is, whatever the formula is of, of adversity, you can develop the internal strength and perseverance and resilience that you need in order to be a quote, strong person. So, I mean, it's an interesting, we have even the, I don't know. I don't think that the people who are living in homeless camps are living it up. I think that looks pretty darn miserable, but you can see that you can see their outlets snake out of their tents and plug into, you know, the lamppost sometime. And you can see that they are on their cell phones and that they have food and, you know, so this is not, I, I know that's kind of a wild example, but I'm just picturing like, there are people who are falling through the cracks in our society and really suffering, but there's also this baseline of people getting a lot of what they need in certain ways that may mm -hmm. protect them from having to develop other forms of resilience. I don't know. What are y'all's thoughts? I think that's where it goes too far. When, like, I'm not going to argue with somebody about if they are traumatized or not. To me, that's not that's not the um, where I would place the, the emphasis. Maybe they feel traumatized and I think, good Lord, you just had a bad haircut. How are you traumatized? But what to me makes it go too far is the response to that. If the response is, therefore, you have no accountability for your actions. Therefore, you poor traumatized soul, I will draw no boundaries with you. I won't question anything you say. Or as in the DEI stuff, I will hand over all my power to you and now be in a subordinate position to you because you have some alleged trauma that I somehow um, owe you for. That's where it goes too far when it distorts healthy relations and healthy normal social expectations. For me, that's where it goes too far. Yeah, I, I have a question for you guys working with clients. It's coming up from something I did with a systemic constellation once, but I don't know if you found if you had someone who say presented, you know, more in a like a victim identity, if there it ever surfaced that you suddenly found another part that was quite powerful that was just like hidden or something like that. Like I did, I don't know if you know, systemic constellations, I don't want to get into it too much if people don't know, but I was enacting with other people, like a part of me that felt very collapsed, you know, and then it was suddenly very, I moved around to be these different representatives of myself. And suddenly there was this other part that was like, had superpowers. It was like, so strong and it was like i kept maintaining that i'm this weak but then i stepped over into the other part it was like so clear that just wasn't true it was just i was really not conscious of how much like power some other aspect had and it was buried you know and so i don't know if that's come up in your work at all with with people where they might um on the surface there just might be way more identified with it might be more present the victim or collapsed and and I mean I definitely struggle with that myself right and then but like uh oh like they don't it's in there like 
<laughs> like you maybe find it, you do a little gestalt with them or you do something or they, I don't know, they, they project it, but it's like, ha, uh, guess what? You've been found out. <laughs> Have you seen that at all? Oh yeah. And I love that. I, I always feel like that's exciting when you see the strength or the power, um, come up and I, I'm always kind of, um, you know, looking for that. Funny you say that. A friend of mine on the course is literally working with someone with a um, dissociative identity disorder, and they have there's a part that that, that doesn't have a name but has superpowers. Almost like you said, Deborah, the superpower to be able to do whatever they like, because the the slightly slightly more in charge part of them is 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 unable to take responsibility for for the things that happen to them, for the things that have occurred in their life, and it's almost as if that part that part of them is just kind of hidden, but comes out at particular times. And it's very interesting to know when that part comes out, what is the function of it at that point? Um, so yeah, it's almost as if this shadow side is always there um, somewhere. Yeah, so Andrew Joyner says, maybe we got it too easy in some ways, bet you people didn't worry about pronouns in medieval times. <laughs> so yeah, I think that that's, that's the thing is like you, you if something's difficult until you get and i don't know maybe i'm uh maybe i'm being too general but um until you get something to push back against that you're not going to develop that that sense for yourself of where to push so if if this was difficult and it and it was resolved for you then something a little bit less difficult is you're you're going to keep creeping like you think of the little kid who who gets everything coddled it's all the way down to pronouns it's all the way down to but i want that and i want that and if you don't give that to me then i'm really going to be sad and at some point you have to learn limits and this represents a like if you're if you're always short-term compassionate then you're never drawing limits you're just soothing every ache every every discomfort is being soothed and so then the at, at the point where the limit is now drawn, that's going to be experienced as great discomfort to that individual. That's going to be really difficult for them to handle. They've never had limits drawn. They've never come up against that wall. And so, I don't know, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about the, the pronoun creep. And then someone in the chat also commented that the tree behind you, Jennifer, looks like a crown radiating from your head. Oh. <laughs> I can... Now I can't unsee it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was just thinking about the kind of hypersensitivity versus stoic kind of continuum, if you like, and it's like one or the other. But but it does seem to me like, particularly from what you said as well, Jen, that, that, that if you're able to, in that moment of being hypersensitive, signal to the people around you, because that's what you're kind of doing as a secondary probably to what your primary feeling, which is, oh shit, I don't feel like I can tolerate what's happening in my body. Like, you are also signaling to the people around you, this person needs help, this person needs to regulate. And if you have resources around you that can help regulate you, then then that's, that's and, and, and then you can kind of insert yourself back into that community, then that's almost like, and I don't know how many, you know, maybe you don't need to always foster like a in hard, harsh individual resilience if you have those supportive communities. But I guess the whole pronoun thing and this hyper-individualized, kind of ideology the way of thinking things is, is is not about 
how does how do you integrate back into the community it's about me i want this this is my trauma there's no integration is it it's just it is purely like cut off because that's where it's useful for them i don't know mm -hmm. someone mm -hmm. that i was uh, that i'm that i'm close to um when when his child was small the kid was like two three years old he would he struggled a lot with the kid throwing tantrums when he was disappointed so he would throw these big tantrums if he was disappointed and he was really disappointed if he wasn't the first one to get something so um our kids were all about the same age and so when my my sons like there's three three little boys and if this child was obsessed with getting the first of whatever so I can remember, for instance, going out to uh, dinner together, and if the waiter brought the plates, you couldn't control where the waiter was going to sit them. And if, if he sat in front of one of my sons instead of this little boy first, this little boy would absolutely melt down. I want number one. I want number one. I want to be number one. And he was really small. He was a little kid. So little kids do these really irrational things. They get fixated on things. But what his dad would do was to to try to placate his kid and say well you did get number one don't you see because he got negative one and then the next kid got zero so you were actually number one and then the kid would be like oh, okay so this 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 friend of mine would just go through these he he was coming up with these really creative ways to always placate and always make his kid feel like he he got the thing he wanted and I saw him do this over and over and over. And it was with a number of things. That's just one example. But it was anything to stop the tantrum, anything to appease the child. And and I thought, you, you really need to, this kid has a, a distress tolerance problems already. He's, you know, and then he was growing and he's like, now he's four and he's and he's six and and the and dad is still doing these things. And this child is having so much trouble with emotional regulation, self-regulation. What you really need to be doing is allowing him to experience that, that disappointment and scaffolding him through that process and helping him to manage how he feels about not being number one or whatever it might be. But instead, you're always providing him with a, with a, a, you know, a safety net. And lo and behold, this kid is a very, he, he's has a lot of problems with regulation now in his, you know, uh, pre-adolescence. And so I just think that this, this is something that I've been concerned about watching and, you know, for their family, I know that's going to present problems for them. And I think that that's just one little anecdote, but it, for me, it feels like that's a version of what we're seeing in so many ways with the coddling of, of people in the victim culture. Yeah, one isn't one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That that reality is uncomfortable for you. So let me shift reality so that it makes you more comfortable. That's exactly right, Deborah. That's mm -hmm. so interesting. But you know, I think people confuse compassion with lack of boundaries. Because mm -hmm. it's just like, what if your kid never wants to eat vegetables? They just want cookies. Would it really be compassionate to say, oh, okay, you'll just have cookies? No, it's not. Like compassionate is really doing being compassionate is really doing what's best overall, not doing what pleases somebody in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that comes back to the time question. Because if it if compassion is a deep connection with the suffering of someone else, coupled with a desire to alleviate that suffering, 
are you so impatient that you are you unable to to tolerate the distress so you must alleviate right. this this right now or can yeah. you see that you by by changing your strategy you could alleviate this in a much bigger way going forward so maybe mm -hmm. it's about your own emotional regulation that's right that's yeah. right and that's why i'm like i could understand the parent just being like Oh man, I just want a chilled meal out. I cannot even deal with this. What if he throws himself on the floor and screams for half an hour? I'm just going to tweak reality so that he thinks he's number one. I, I mean, I get it because maybe for the parent, it's so stressful that they're all dysregulated and they feel like blah, 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 blah for the rest of the day. You know, you're reminding me, I can't remember if it was Chogim Trump or Rinpoche or if it was Gurdjieff, I don't know. One of them phrased this thing called idiot compassion. And it's basically what we're talking about. It's mm. like, it's not wise. You know, it's not, it, it's just idiot. It's just like knee jerky, just doing it and not really assessing a situation. So I think we're, we're not for idiot compassion. Doesn't mean I'm not sometimes guilty of it. I do that with my dog sometimes. <laughs> if he really wants attention and I'm not in the mood, I'm like, Oh, fine, I'll just do it. And then you'll like you'll go away if I give you some pats on the head. Well, David, coming full circle, what do you think about the direction that the topic went? What have we covered? We've covered we've done compassion, but we also talked about the rising concept creep of trauma in our society. And um i'm also thinking the whole time about my my year next year and some of the conversations i'm going to have on my course and taking what we're thinking about here and thinking how can i put that into something that makes sense for people in a conversation at some point next year so i i really enjoyed this conversation and it's, it's really helpful for me to just think through some of these things so i appreciate that Andrew Joyner sends, it looks like three pounds. Thank you, Andrew. That's yeah. nice. And a thumbs up. Um, Do Re Mia Culpa says, I know of a grade seven teacher who was teaching her students about microaggressions. So fragility was being reinforced rather than resilience. Yep. And then Cowlick Combs, hello, says you can kill someone with kindness too. Yeah. Mm. It's really great. It's been so great for all of you to have uh, weighed in on this. It's an interesting topic. And um, thanks to everybody who was in the chat today. And uh, Paul McAuliffe says, David, you opened quite a Pandora's box today. It's been a great chat. <laughs> so thank you to everybody who joined us. Any final thoughts, Deborah or Jennifer? No. <laughs> no. That's it. That's Those are it. All of my Jennifer. thoughts. Oh, Matt, thank you. That's really great. Sends a super chat and says, excellent discussion. That's I'm really nice. Yay. All on that picture now. That's, they've all gone out there into the... Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> Jennifer, I hope you get some rest. Oh, my God. <laughs> no I more green you. tea in the afternoon. Green tea not before... From Star not from Starbucks. <laughs> before can you, noon. Can you no, I'm going to get sued by them. They oh, overbrew their tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like the Oprah and the Texas Cattlemen's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, see y'all next week, everybody. Bye-bye. All right.